let's turn to the book of James, chapter 1. Going to start at verses 18 to 25. I'm Harold, one of the pastors. It's my joy and honor to bring to you God's word. So let's pay attention to this in our Bibles, also projected overhead. I'll read it for us. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So we launched this series in the book of James, Pastor Daniel Dinko, starting the verse eight, eight, uh, first eight verses. I'm picking up here at verses 18 to 25. Faith comes by hearing and doing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and doing the word of God. Uh, Early in seminary, there's a preaching professor who once said, it will take each of you 10 years, 10 years of regular preaching, teaching, speaking, talking to find your own voice. He said this to my horror. It should have humbled me a lot more, but I was too young. But he said, for 10 years, in the beginning, you're going to copy, you're going to try to be like this, you're going to try to sound like this person, you're going to plagiarize, borrow shamelessly, everyone does this. But after 10 years, you might find your own voice. So, there's been a lot of years of study, there's a lot of years of stresses and joys, highs and lows, in trying to understand the word of God. And to pray over it so that it speaks to me first. And then hopefully I'm speaking it in a clear and compelling way so that the Spirit of God can do his masterful work. Lots of preparation. Lots of training. In fact, in the same book it says, not many of you should become teachers of the Word of God. Because you're going to be held to a stricter standard of accountability and judgment. But I realize in this passage, what James is instructing us to do is that there's very little preparation or training in comparison for you. Very little preparation for you in how to listen and get ready so much so that you get the most out of God's word. Have you been trained? Is there any kind of training that should take place? Well, James instructs us instructs us this day. The main driving question throughout the five chapters of this book is this. What does it look like if you have real saving faith in Jesus Christ and you enter into a new relationship with God? If you have a whole new relationship with God 
through real faith in Jesus, a substitute savior, how does that affect or make a difference in your life? Today we talk about the first and foremost difference. For anybody in this room who's entered into a, <clears throat> into a whole new relationship with God through Jesus, you automatically enter into a whole new relationship with his word. The first and most foundational sign is if you have a new life with God, God's word takes upon a whole new life with you. So just three angles. First is one new approach. Second is two accomplishments on the part of God. Third is two activities from our parts. Three angles. One whole new approach. Second, two accomplishments that God does through his spirit and by his word. And third, three activities, three active responses. First, the approach. The approach. Verse 21. Look at this. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So, evidently it sounds to me there are things you should do before you listen or want to receive the word. There are things called preparations to be done before you and I can get the most out of God's word. If you have that special anniversary or that once in a year celebration and you make a 7 p.m. reservation at that fancy, quite expensive restaurant, you want to go all out. How many of you in this room, before 7 p.m. dinner starts, you fill your stomach with junk food all day? How many of you anticipating that special dinner do not consider at all clearing your stomachs or your schedules so that you could arrive in time. How many of you looking forward to that savory, delicious meal purposefully show up late at the risk of missing your reservation or being all sweaty and frenetic and stressed out? How many of you in this room prepare in that fashion for anything that might be valuable and important to you. You see, my friends, what James is pointing out this day is this. How you prepare or approach the word of God, if at all, reveals almost everything you need to know about your relationship with God. Let me say that again. How you prepare or approach the very word of God reveals to you, despite what you sing and say, despite your routines, it really should show you how much value you put upon the very word of God. <laughs> what relationship does the word of God have with you? Is it alive and dynamic to you? Or is it dead to you? Maybe you're dead to it. Do you find it of primary importance or is it just peripheral random irrelevant what relationship do you have before the word of god first peter chapter 2 says christians crave and cry out for the word of god like newborns crave milk christians naturally automatically when they are born again 
crave and hunger for the word of God like newborns cry for milk. Psalm 119 and Psalm 139. There are so many Psalms, I cannot list them all. Christians cherish the word of God. And they say it's more valuable if I had to run out of my house and the first goods that I would carry with me would not be my gold, would not be the safe, would not be my jewelry, would not be my computer. Christians would always say, I cherish the word of God more than anything else I could ever have. For after all, verse 18 reads, creation happened by the word of God. My friend, do you know that things came out of nothing? That everything came out of nothing? How? By the word of God. How do you approach and prepare for the word of God? Verse uh, 21. The word of God is able to save our souls. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 reads, Faith comes. From hearing the word of God. Oh, my faith is wavering, always doubting. It's weak. I have very small, fragile faith. Where can I get more of it? How can I build it up? Faith comes from hearing the word of God. So what's your approach, my friends? Shouldn't there be an approach? Verse 21 told us. Put away all filthiness first. Well, there's actually something else you got to put away first. Before verse 21, it says, anger does not produce the righteousness of God. Be slow to anger because God is slow to anger. So in order to get the most out of the word of God, you actually have to clear and you got to put away anger. You know, ironically, some of you might be angry every Sunday morning because you're late. And you're angry at your child. You're angry at your spouse. You're muttering in your heart, if I didn't have this devil child, I would be here early and I would be prayerful and I'd be prepared. But that kind of anger, any kind of anger, actually completely spoils your appetite. And you're not going to be able to digest well the word of God. Second, put away all filthiness. Filth. Filth, lustful, pornographic images and thoughts. Thinking about what you did this week or yesterday or longing and can't wait what you're going to do next weekend. Filth. Third, rampant wickedness. What's that? Do I really need to define it for you? Rampant wickedness. And if you're filled with anger and if you're filled with filth and you're filled with rampant wickedness, there is really no way you can receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, this is why we have confession of sin during our worship service. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know how we did it before without that. Because as long as you can put away, in essence, it's like clearing your stomach. It's clearing your appetite. So that you can truly eat and enjoy and appreciate and be impacted by that which brought everything out of nothing and is able to save your souls. How should you receive it then? With meekness. You see, a meek person is not a person who says before the Holy Scriptures of God, 
I really like it when you talk about this, Pastor, but don't talk about this. I like it when you talk about external public behaviors, but please don't talk about my bedroom. I like it when you talk about policies out there and how Christians should be a salt and light, but don't talk about my finances or my money. Stay out of there. A meek person never says before the word of God, I like this part, I don't like this part. You see, a meek person doesn't approach the Bible like a menu or a list of options or just a set of choices. You know, there's a couple outstanding reasons why I am absolutely blessed and privileged to be called a Christian today. Until today. The first is this. I believe Jesus got up from death. I believe in that miracle. I believe Jesus physically, literally, historically, the body was raised by the supreme power of God. To signal that Jesus is the son of God and that he's going to come back and rule and judge over all. I believe Jesus was raised from death so that our sins can be assured to be completely and irreversibly forgiven. This is why I'm a Christian today. And anyone who would loosely throw around the label of Christian or Christian this or Christian that, who does not believe, like Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus was indeed raised from death, I dare say and would argue, I don't know how you can say Christian and I don't believe in the resurrection from death because Jesus resurrected. Oh, here's the second reason why I'm still a Christian today. I've never, never read any other book like this book. I've never read any other book that moves with the force and the majesty and the clarity and the conviction and the comfort and the rebuking and the humbling and the saving and the protecting and the calling and the sustaining power that I get from the Holy Scriptures. Now, I'm not going to pretend and sit up here. That happens all the time. No, far from it. But there's no other book that comes close to this. There is no other book that speaks to me as if it might be God speaking into my souls. You know, sometimes randomly people come up to me, Pastor, today, I don't know what it is. Did you talk to my wife or my friend? I felt like you were talking directly to me. You talk to me as if you knew exactly what I went through this week. You must know my heart. I'm sitting there and say, what's your name? What's your name again? No, I had no idea what was going on in your heart. A lot of times I had not you in mind at all. That was God speaking to you through his word. Through the majesty and the power of his word. These days the Bible is challenging me. And how I should better father my teenage daughters. Go figure that the word of God has something for me at every age, every season, every situation. It's never irrelevant. We just have to look and dig a little deeper. These days the Bible is also very much challenging me and encouraging me in how I should father and lead the church better. This is the very word of God that we want to approach. A couple of objections go like this. Oh, pastor, I've tried 2020. I've already given up. It's already February. You know, those Bible reading programs. It's just so difficult. I, don't, I can't understand it. It's hard for me to pay attention. 
Can I ask you? How is it that you figured out all those fantasy football rules? How come it's never a problem for you to figure out how to get the refund from the shopping mall or that airline? I never read those fine print, but now you know it. Why is it at the local golf club, the slightest edit, the new amendment, you can quote verbatim. Pastor, pastor, the Bible is just too difficult for me to understand. I don't know how to do it. No, no. Have you tried? Have you really tried? You know, how many books in the world begin to claim that they are revealed by and speak for God? Give me the list. Very short. How many books can be attested to being the most foundational piece of document to all of Western civilization? The list gets even shorter. Which book is the most influential, sold out, popular book of all time? You take all three criteria together, it all singularly falls down upon this book. Here's my question to you. Why do you read so many other things before you read this one? Why are you so knowledgeable about so many other things in the world before this, which can save your souls? How is it possible in the U.S. of A., we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies of the Bible. I'm not a reader. I'm not a reader. Great. There's things called podcasts. You can listen to it. You're stuck in traffic for an hour each way. You can listen. I guarantee if you listen to that every day, you will know so much more of the scriptures by this year end. And I will guarantee you by the end of this year, your life will have undergone a change. Oh, it's difficult. It's hard for me to understand. I'm just suggesting to you as your pastor who loves you, we cop out before the word of God, before you cop out on everything else. Here's a second objection. It's outdated and it offends me. Oh, it's outdated. I just don't, what? Really, it says that? Are you kidding me? In my classroom, in my work, it says, oh, it offends me. I will tell you this. I will compliment you if it offends you because that at least means you're on track and you might be reading and understanding the Bible. But can I ask you to consider if it really does offend you, if this is the word of God, if this is really divine, transcendent, Shouldn't it commend and praise and critique all people, all cultures, all societies throughout all of time? If this is the word of God, it cannot just be trendy for you in 2020 because it will not fit with 2080. The word of God should always commend and critique. You're going to find some parts very palatable, very beautiful, very majestic, and other parts just downright awful. But I think that only goes to show that this might be the very breath and revelation of God. How do you know if you have a new relationship with God through saving faith in Jesus? You enter into a whole new relationship with this word. What is your relationship with this word? What is its relationship to you? Do you look at your approach? Do you have an approach? Are there preparations? Oh, here's two accomplishments now. 
Two accomplishments that God delivers through his word. Verse 21, able to save you. He can save you. Save you from what? Right now in this room, the word of God can save you from self-underestimation and self-overestimation. Every one of you does one or the other, including myself, until the word of God comes along. It can save you from self-pity. It can save you from self-delusions. It can save you from the utter lack of self-awareness. It can save you from self-determination, which always leads to self-destruction. Let me say that again. Self-determination, unhindered, unhindered, unilateral from your part, always leads to self-destruction. And it's not only hellish and miserable on this side of eternity, there is an eternity reserved for all those who say, I will determine myself. I will not bend the knee. I will not submit to anyone outside of me. But the word of God comes along and shows you lovingly, there is a much better way. The word of God saves sinners from themselves, from Satan, and in eternity under God's holy judgment. Charles Spurgeon, a lot of people would attest, was maybe the greatest preacher ever. And at the age of 15, he was well-churched, but miserable by his own account. There was a snowstorm, so he was not able to make it to his normal, regular church. So he passed by this other alternate church on Artillery Street, and he wandered into there, and he found himself in a room of 12 to 15 people, a small church. And he said that day, the normal trained pastor wasn't even available. So a lay person, that's a deacon or elder who didn't go to seminary, a lay substitute preacher rose into the pulpit and he started to speak from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. And Charles Spurgeon, as a 15-year-old boy, sat there saying, he seemed to me, quote, very stupid. That lay preacher was very stupid. Because he stuck to the text, evidently because he had little else to say. And all the preacher would say was, look to me and be saved. Look to me and be saved. Look to me and all the ends of the earth, you will be saved. And at one point, he happened to just point out, you there, young man, young man right there, you look miserable. And Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, it's as if the gates of heaven opened up, swallowed him whole. And he repented and came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Because of the word of God, even through a very stupid preacher. That's accomplishment number one. Here's accomplishment number two. The word of God shapes you like nothing else can. Can shape you like nothing else can. Verse verse 27. Remember the driving question throughout this book? If you have real faith in Jesus Christ, what should your life look like? Here's the answer. Here's a summary to the entirety of this book. It reads, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. And keep oneself unstained. Sounds like social compassion, 
social justice. Christian people care the most about gross injustice and inequalities. Christian people care the most of the least of these. And self-control. Social justice, self-control. Social ethics, sexual ethics. What you do in public to help the poor and what you do in your minds and in the privacy of your bedrooms. They come together. Here's the ancient prophet by the name of Amos, chapter 3. We read here, verse 7, sorry, chapter 2, verse 7. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. Amos the prophet, look at what he bridges together. Those who take advantage of, continue to mistreat, rob, usurp, get away with the poor. And a man and his father go into the same girl. You talk about the Bible's not real or vivid. Here, the ancient prophet puts, again, economics with sexual ethics. Last Sunday was what? Super Bowl Sunday. Super Bowl Sunday. If you get the gift or the luxury to be able to go to that game in Miami, sit in those seats, what a treat. That was a great game. It was heartbreaking to read the week leading up to Super Bowl Sunday, all the reports that while the Super Bowl is going on, sex trafficking would also hit the roof. While the Super Bowl is going on, the average age, the average age of girls who would be trafficked is 13. Now, do you see what the Word of God does that nothing else does? It puts economics and sexual ethics together. It puts social justice and self-control together. Name me a political campaign that puts two together. Tell me one, on the right or the left. Tell me what school you went to. What educational philosophy or system out there tells you to bring these two things together? And this is how you know that the word of God is shaping you more than anything else. Is that you bring and hold two things together that the rest of the world just does not. You care about two things together that seemingly are opposite in priority attention. But they actually begin to shape you because this is the very life and heart of God. The word of God saves sinners. And then the word of God shapes you. In ways nothing else can touch. Medication is not going to save your soul. Therapy is not going to save your soul. Your money is not going to save your soul. Your happy family is not going to save your soul. Your car is not going to save your soul. What is going to save your soul? Why are we here? What are we doing as a church? What can save your soul? I know nothing else but the word of God. And as long as you and the church come before with a new approach, God can accomplish supernatural things. We close with two activities now. 
two new activities on our end from our, our response. Look at verse 23. Listen and look into the law intently. See that verse 23? Listen and look intently into it. Intently is the same Greek word that describes Peter on that first Easter Sunday morning when the first foundational witness that the body was gone, that Jesus must have been raised from death, was a woman. A woman was the first foundational witness to the movement of Christianity. And then Peter comes up to this empty tomb. He observes that the stone has been rolled away. The grave clothes are lying there. There's no mutilated, bloodied body left. And what do you think he did with that scene? What do you think he did with that scene? Looked at it and said, oh, well, that was pretty neat, and just walked on. Do you think he just gave it a casual, hurried glance? Do you think he just sent out one Twitter message on it? Do you think for him it was just like reading a text real quick and then getting back to something really important that you're doing? No. I assure you, Peter on that first Easter Sunday morning was intent. He was gazing and staring He was observing and analyzing, and all of his faculties were going into overdrive. And as he did that, he actually was changed by that event. James here is asking us this question. How intent are you? How intentional are you? How thoughtful are you? How studious are you? How disciplined are you? How serious are you about this? Because if this is the only thing that can save your souls and shape you in ways that other, other things can't, why is the majority of all your energies and attention going elsewhere? Listen and look into the word of God intently. And this is why verse 25 goes on to read this. <clears throat> but the one who looks into the perfect law, which is the word of God, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts He will be blessed in his doing. Keep at it. Persevere. Develop new muscles. You will begin to not only enjoy it, you're going to fall in love with it. Perseveres for he will be blessed in what he or she does. Second activity. Second activity and we're done. Not only must you look and listen into the word of God intently. Second, become doers not just hearers of the word. Please be about doing, not just hearing the word. You must do what you heard. You must act from what you saw in the mirror. You must have an action item response from what you received to get the most out of God's word. Doing, not just hearing. Hey, I can safely, happily say, of all the churches and ministries I get the honor to preach God's word to, CCSE happens to be my favorite. This dead still silence right now, maybe one or two sleeping, but most of you, it signals how attentive and hungry And really, how much you want to get out of God's word. I love this church. We've grown comfortable with each other to a certain degree. Have we not? I love how you want to pay attention. You're intentional about it. Especially on a Sunday morning. 
But I also want you to beware. Really beware. That if all you do is listen and listen and listen and you never do, you're actually going to build up an immunity against the word of God. Do you know what I mean? You're going to build up an immunity against the word of God? You're just going to become cliche, not Christian. You're just going to always be there passively observing and then you listen to 10 sermons. Can I suggest to you, it would be much better you do one sermon than hear a hundred of the best sermons. This sermon series in the book of James might just become the best sermon series you ever hear because if you turn around and do it, it'll be that much more consequential to you. Become doers, not just hearers. Oh, there's so many, so many things, so many times, so many trends going on today where we're busy consuming, critiquing, choosing, selecting. You got it all upside down. The critiquing, the selecting, the exposing, the choosing, the searching, all of it is actually done by the sole authority and the very love and voice of God. <laughs> Man, Sonny and I are trying our best. Kids grow up so fast. We hope to God that Taylor and Elizabeth, now at the age, uh, as teenagers, know that mom and dad are true, mom and dad are loving, and mom and dad want what is best for them. All of us in this room are a little bit older, though. You do know that teenage girls can only understand that up to a certain level. It's an intellectual ascent. It's still a theory. Yes, it's been proven and true uh, time and time again. But until Taylor and Elizabeth actually do what mom and dad might have told them, which happens to be loving and true and what's best for them, then and only then they'll be able to feel, feel it like they've never felt it before. You see, a lot of you in this room know that God is true, God is loving, and God wants what's best for me. Those are great doctrines. Those are great guardrails for us. But if you never obey, you never do, you never follow, you never put it out in action, can I tell you this very carefully? You will only know that God loves you, but you won't feel it. You will only know God loves you up to a certain level, but you won't be assured of it. You'll only say that, oh yes, of course God loves me, but you're not like enraptured by it. You can say, yes, that's my creed, that's my confession, but you're not going to be changed by it. You see, why would a parent's love for their girls ever be, oh yeah, I want you to feel totally happy and assured when you don't do anything that we tell you, especially if you date that that weird, suspicious boy that we don't like. Anyway, we always want you to feel loved by us no matter what you do. How in the world is God going to turn around with his own children? With his own children. And let you feel the assurance, the enrapture, the kind of changing force of his love, even when you don't obey? Oh, read John 14. Read John 15. Read John 16. Look at how many direct connections and correlations there are. You will know, you will believe, 
you will feel, you'll be confident of, you'll be sure of, you'll be assured. You're going to be absolutely sure of this. When? When? When you obey. And when you obey and do the word of God, you will know and feel the love of God in ways like you've never done before. Go on a short-term mission trip. Go. Go to the shopping mall sometime. Just randomly try to put yourself out there and talk about Jesus. It's going to open up a whole new world. A whole new world. God wants for his children to not just listen, but to do his word. And until you really try to do his word, you're never going to ache and need a savior. Here's the most ironic part. Until you really try to become a Christian, you can't become Christian. Until you really try to do the word of God, which is the perfect law, it's called the perfect law, until you see that you can't become a Christian, then and only then you can actually become a Christian. Because there's only one person in the universe who looked and listened intently to all of the law of God and fulfilled it all. There's only one person by the name of Jesus Christ who looked and fulfilled all of the perfect law. And now he gives us his law and it's a law of liberty to us. Martin Luther, if you haven't heard that name, the forerunner of the Reformation in history. He was a strict Augustinian monk, which means he lived in a monastery. He'd pray for hours and hours upon end in the morning, confessing every kind of filth, wickedness, anger, any hint of sin he knew of. It is said of Martin Luther, he would confess his flatulence. He was so sensitive in his conscience, he confessed his flatulence. What is that? Go look it up after service. At coffee hour. While you're eating the donut, look it up. (laughs) And then he came across this verse, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he was struck. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here we go, the dilemma, the headache that Martin Luther got from this verse. All of his life, any mention of the righteousness of God, to him, he says he had dreams that the Bible was a dreadful, condemning, heavy, anvil-like hammer of judgment upon his chest. He would have dreams that the Bible, which is the righteousness of God, was crushing his body and soul. But then he had to wrestle with this verse. How is it that the righteousness of God can be mentioned anywhere near this other word called the gospel? Because the gospel means good news. And so now Luther looked intently. Mind went into overdrive. He was meditating upon it. He was wrestling with it. He was trying to deduce things from it. He was trying to make sense of these things. He was really trying to get into why is these verses there? How does the good news, the gospel, be mentioned in the same place as righteousness? And then it clicked. And then it clicked. Because the Holy Spirit came to him and told him, well, 
The only way it could be good news is if the righteousness of God is not something we produce, but it's something God provides. The only way the gospel could be ringing as good news is if the righteousness of God is not something I attain, I present, I produce, but it's something that God provides in Jesus Christ. And then do you know what happened in his relationship to the Holy Scriptures? No longer a condemning weight. It was a life-giving, liberating balm. The Bible was no longer traumatic. It became a tonic. The Bible wasn't there to make you bleed out. It's there to get rid of and shrink all your tumors. What does real faith in Jesus Christ and a new relationship with God look like? It looks like millions and millions and billions of people throughout history and throughout the world who cry for the Bible like milk and who cherish it more than gold. And they'd rather stand in a line with no air conditioning, with no safety, with no coffee and donuts, just so that they can hear and learn and do the word of God. Oh, may it be so that Jesus, Holy Spirit, and God the Father bring this revival about here at the life of Christ Central. Because our vision is we want to see lives changed as Jesus becomes central. So do you really want to become more like Jesus? Do you want to taste and feel the love of Jesus? Do you want the life of Jesus to come rushing in? Well, here's what Jesus did. He breathed in and exhaled scripture. When he was happy, he sang scripture. When he was in distress, he sang the same scriptures. When he was bleeding and dying, he quoted scripture. When the devil assaulted him and tempted him, he fought back with scripture. This man literally bled scripture. And Jesus was so committed to doing the word of God, he bled and died to keep doing it. Jesus bled and died to keep doing it. Why? To save and shape you. So what's your approach going to be? <laughs> what's your active responses should be? And then see the accomplishments God makes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word this day. Oh, Lord. We put away anger. We put away malice. We put away wickedness. We put away filth. Teach us to do these things so that in meekness we might receive the implanted word which is able to save souls. Oh God, would your life come rushing in through faith in Jesus? Would you change our approach? Would you make us more active in our responses and do your saving and shaping work in us? Can I just give you a couple moments, a couple moments here? Respond back in prayer. There is no more powerful of a prayer that is guaranteed to be answered than the prayer that says, I want to do your word. When you pray, I want to obey and carry out this word, God is guaranteed. He promises himself to come and give you everything necessary to carry it out. God will not tell you to do things you cannot do. He will only tell you things you can do by His Word and when you call out in prayer for His Spirit.
So amen to that.